This is Pure Murders and Mysteries. Let's talk murder. Welcome back to Pure Murders and Mysteries. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Lindy. And I'm Brad. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the horrific yogurt shop murders that took the lives of four teenage girls back in 1991. This is the beginning of an unsolved cold case that very quickly went off the rails. Before we cross the crime scenes tape, just want to let everybody know that Pure Murders and Mysteries is brought to you by PureFandom.com. Pure Fandom is filled with some amazing writers who bring you the latest information on your favorite movie or TV fandom. Please keep in mind, this episode deals with true crime, violence, adult topics, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Now that we have that taken care of, let's talk murder. So this episode discusses the murder of four teenage girls in Austin, Texas in 1991. And despite two people being convicted at one point, they were later released and the case is now, for all intents and purposes, a cold case. People still obsessively try to solve this heinous crime and there is no shortage of theories that are still attached to it. So before we really dive in, just want to mention a few notable sources that we um, use to put this episode together. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, 48 hours, there was a 48 hours episode about it. That was wonderful. Um, CBS News did a huge article and deep dive into this case. Um, I think we also found a lot of stuff on on Reddit, a lot of mm-hmm. local news articles from the time that these had happened. Uh, crime Feed, True Crime Daily, and Case Law also among them. Mm-hmm. There is a lot so of I stuff know, out there. There's yeah. a lot. Yeah, because it was really a, a big, big case, and it stretched out over a lot of years. So, okay, so the crime involved four victims four teenage girls, Amy Ayers, who was 13, Jennifer Harbison, who was 17, Jennifer's sister, Sarah Harbison, who was 15, and Eliza Thomas, who was 17 years old. So on December 6, 1991, Jennifer and Eliza were working the closing shift um, alone at a yogurt shop in Austin called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, which is a wonderful name for a store. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It was the 90s. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were all, all four girls were going to be having a sleepover at the Harbison's that night. Sometime in the evening, Amy and Sarah, which is the two younger girls, they arrive at the shop and they're going to hang out there to get a ride back from the older girls that are um, working. So they had been, I, it's reported that they had gone to get pizza and it's also reported that they came from the mall. So I'm guessing it's a combination of those two. Um and the mall, I Google Maps it, is just a 10-minute walk away. It's it's basically right beside the yogurt shop. So they didn't have far to walk. So the next thing we know about that night is that the yogurt shop closes at 11. Um, the girls started cleaning up way before that. But the, the next piece of, I guess, hard evidence they have about the crime is that at 11.03 p.m., a no sale is rung up. So that is when... Um, Somebody hits no sale so that the cash drawer can be opened without an actual sale. So um, they assume that this is the start of a robbery when they go back and look at this. Just before midnight, there is smoke that's reported coming from the back of the yogurt shop. So obviously the firefighters rush to the scene. Um, They extinguish the flames. And it's not until after they put the fire out and they've gone inside of the shop that somebody spots a foot mm-hmm. and they find bodies and they call the cops. They initially just find the three girls, Eliza, Sarah, and Jennifer in the back room. Um, and then later as they're walking through, they make another call in and say, hold the phone. There's four bodies and they have found Amy. Um, she's also kind of in the back area, but not in the same spot as the other girls. Mm-hmm. So what they find morning, this is a lot they find that all three girls are nude and tied up with their own clothing. Two of them were gagged and Amy was, they presume sexually assaulted. And so the way that the bodies were found uh, is that the three girls, aside from Amy were found in that back area. They say that their bodies were 
stacked on top of each other. Um, when they actually found them, one of the girls wasn't stacked on top, but was kind of laying nearby. But this was a gruesome detail, but um, they suspect that possibly with the fire and putting out the fire that it, she may have just fallen off of the pile. Um, oh, no. I know. So uh, Amy was, they were all found shot once in the head with a 22 caliber gun except for Amy, who was shot twice in the head, once by the 22 caliber gun and another time uh, with a different gun that we'll discuss later. Um, Amy actually was still clinging to life when they got there. She was still alive. She had not been, she, being in a different part of the, of the shop, she was not, had not been burned like the other three girls, um, but she succumbed to her injuries shortly after she was found. And they say that the only sign of struggle was with Amy and that there was a wound on her head, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they say it looked like she had been probably hit with a gun or hit in the head at, mm -hmm. at some point during the attack. So breather there, that's a lot. <laughs> Some other things that we know about the case, before we can really dive into the theories and, and the people that were convicted, we have to know all the details here. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there was $540, which were taken from the cash register, the till. Um, the back, They used, and I know one of you guys probably know more than this, somebody to actually cause the fire, what, what did they find was used? Do you guys know to start the fire? Oh, I mean, they had found these styrofoam cups that were filled with um, some sort of... The reason why I keep wanting to say accelerant is because yeah. the <laughs> it, that was a sticking point in the transcript. Um, but yeah, oh, lighter fluid. It was right. filled with lighter fluid in styrofoam cups, and it was tossed all over the girls. No, say yeah. accelerant because everybody says accelerant. <laughs> Here Brad goes. This is going to come up later when yeah. Brad starts going on his rants about mm -hmm. confession. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, somebody had spread lighter, we'll just say lighter fluid to start uh -huh. the fire. Um, the back door was unlocked, and the owner of the yogurt shop did say that he thought that was strange. The front door mm -hmm. was locked from the inside with the key still sticking in the inside of the door. Mm -hmm. So I guess they're the thing that they did at the shop was they locked the inside at 11. Um, and then when they left, they locked it from the inside and then slid the key or locked it from the outside and then slid the key back underneath the door for the opening crew. Yeah. Because yeah. they would come in the back and then get the key to open the front door. There was a shop owner who, who owned a, or, somebody that was working at a shop beside them that night. And he said that he didn't hear any of any screams or anything like that, but that they, he did hear some popping sounds. Mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting because there were no signs of a struggle except for with Amy and two, only two of the girls were reportedly found gagged. So I, I don't know how you don't hear screams. Anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. There's probably a lot of ways that that could have gone down that I'm not going to get into. So, mm -hmm. um, okay. So there are some strange customers that uh, people mentioned seeing that night. For one, there was an off-duty cop who went in to get ice cream um, that afternoon when both of the girls were working. He said that he saw a suspicious man who went in and just ordered a soda and then went to the bathroom and the cop made note and thought mental note and thought that it was odd um but he left and then even more strange just before closing a married couple had stopped in about 10 45 so remember the shop closes at 11 they stopped in at 10 45 and recalled seeing two men sitting there eating ice cream well when i when police started looking into this, like, who are these two guys? They got reports from other customers that said that they had seen the guys sitting there um, as early as 9.45 p.m. So mm -hmm. when these when this married couple that had seen them last at 10.45, when they left, they said that the girls locked the door behind them and the two men were still inside. Mm -hmm. So they were the last people presumably to see them alive. Now, Nobody ever was able to identify who they were either. Right. And for everybody who thinks it's a weird thing, right? Let me just 
tell you it's not, and I don't know if it's still something that happens these days or not, but when I was back in that time <laughs> period, we did that like at McDonald's and stuff, man. It's like 10 minutes for closing. If you're in, you're good. You ain't coming in at 10 minutes till closing. That's kind of a, like your cutoff point where you lock the doors. You're done, you know. Last call. No one's coming in that late in time. So that's kind of what they were doing is they would, like after this married couple left at uh, 1047, I think, they probably locked the doors. No one else needs to come in. We shut off the yogurt machines. No one's getting anything anyhow. So just mm-hmm. one of those things. And it happened when I worked at Dairy Queen also. It was the same thing. There's a point where you're like, we're shutting crap down because we want to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what if these two men were interacting with them and like, you guys better lock the door so nobody else comes in so you guys can get out of here. Like, you don't know what was really going on. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, I I don't know. It seems odd because they were two young girls. Like, I think if it was a married couple that were still in there when they locked the doors, that would be one thing. (laughs) But I don't know. But it's really not. I mean, you're, you're looking at a different time period. You're looking at it from like today's time period and not the 90s time period. Sure. And that, that, that is a big difference on how things worked. I mean, we didn't have phones back in the day. We just mm-hmm. used regular phones and we went out and stayed all times and your parents couldn't reach you and while you're mm-hmm. off at the beach surfing at three o'clock in the morning. But that's just me. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. weird things. Things were a lot different back in the 80s, 90s, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, all that stuff than it is now. And things that you, we look at going, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. It wasn't really that out of the normal. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And it's hard for me really because I'm paranoid all the time that I'm going to get murdered. So like everywhere I go, I think about, Oh my God, what if somebody tried to murder me right now? So very different. And also this is Austin, Texas, but in 1991, Austin, Texas was a very different city. It was still a big city, but it had a smaller town feel to it. So Mm -hmm. this was um, maybe not the Austin, Texas today that you are picturing. Right. So, There were four original uh, young kids, four males that were picked up after this crime. So there was a kid named Maurice Pierce who was 16 years old, a real douchebag, getting in trouble all the time. So he was picked up by the mall, the mall that's right by the yogurt shop, because he was carrying around a 22 caliber handgun. Um, Like an idiot, he was bragging about how that gun was used in the yogurt shop murders. I don't understand why that's something he just blithely brags about, but he's an idiot. Okay, I may have missed that one, but yeah, I I, I think I missed that one, but yeah, in general, kids are idiots. (laughs) 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 16-year-old Brad, not a smart guy. <laughs> no. And I mean, yeah, he, this guy was just doing nothing good with himself in no. his life. Uh-uh. So he said, Pierce said that he, when the cops picked him up, he said that he had lent that gun to a friend of his name, Forrest Wilburn. Um, Forrest is 15 years old. And Maurice claimed that Forrest had his gun and used it to commit the yogurt shop murders. So obviously cops are like, oh crap, uh, we're figuring this out. This is what's, mm-hmm. we're, we're about to figure out what happened. So they, there's no evidence that ties them to this. So this uh-huh. is just Maurice Pierce running his mouth. So they wired up Pierce and they sent him to go address Wilburn and get him to talk about the murders. But it became obvious during this conversation that Pierce had lied because Wilburn had no idea what he was talking about. And it was pretty clear that Pierce had uh, been making up that story. But they also roped into the mix Pierce's two other friends, Michael Scott, who was 17 years old, and Robert Springsteen, who was 17 years old. So all four of these friends, these young teens, were questioned about these murders, but there was no evidence linking them to the crimes. So nothing ever came of it. But that's not the last we'll hear about all four of the boys. They'll all pop back in the story in 1999 when, well, we'll talk about later, but when the case reopens. So Pierce and Willburn, there was no evidence definitely linking them to the crime. They didn't confess, but Scott and Springsteen were a different story. 
So there was no evidence linking any of the four uh, young teen boys to the crime, and they didn't confess to it. So all of that was thrown out. But we will hear more about them later on in this episode because they all pop back up into the story in 1999. But until that time, the case grows essentially cold. Um, But there were so many suspects that they were looking into during this time. And there was just a multitude of tips and false Mm -hmm. confessions. And we actually have um, a little audio clip from Detective John Jones, who was one of the first people on the scene of the crime and who was kind of the lead detective Mm -hmm. of the case. Um, It was a little audio clip of him talking about the high number of suspects involved in this yogurt shop murder case. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some indication of just how many suspects you've gone through here? Well, okay. Okay. 342. 342 people that you want to talk to in connection with? That, yeah, 342 people that have been uh, listed as suspect. Is the murder of the four girls at the yogurt shop in there, do you think? Might be. There are several that we haven't got to yet. Do you have a theory? Do all you guys have a, like, a pet theory of... Of this case? I don't because that's a why question. And you can get lost in a why question. You can really get lost. Uh, I'm more interested in the who. Uh, You know, I don't like to get into speculation. Let's hope that this isn't the start of a mass murderer going coast to coast. That's why the FBI seemed to think that this guy's probably still local. You know, heaven help us all if this guy is a, a Ted Bundy, a mass murder version of Ted Bundy. Is that a possibility? Uh, let's hope not. I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't think so. But then again, it, it's 1992. You know, let's, you know, let's, let's not be surprised here. Yeah. A little ominous there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... That's 1992 when that uh, when that interview took place. So the Austin police have admitted that over 50 people, um, including somebody that we'll talk a little bit more in detail about later, named last name McDuff, you may have heard of him, had confessed to the yogurt shop murders. And there was even a notable confession in 1992 by two Mexican nationals who were being held by uh, Mexican authorities um, who actually claimed that they did the yogurt shop murders. And it was looked into quite extensively, but was determined that they were lying. Mm -hmm. And as we've already mentioned, there were just a mass amount of tips coming in, and yet the case still went cold. And Brad, I think you said it. Do you know the amount of tips that were coming in or any details about that? Well, during this period of time, they had over 500, was it like what he's saying? They still have tips coming in on this, mm. even though it's done. At the time, the detectives had over 340 potential suspects during this, during this period in time. And they narrowed that down to, well, they didn't narrow it down. They narrowed most of those down and the leads didn't go anywhere, but they also had 50 confessions. And of those 50, six of those confessions were in writing. Ooh. And That's ridiculous. What? In writing? Right, yeah. These are people who are confessing to it. Did they do it? Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, apparently, the police didn't think they did it. They didn't have enough evidence about it. And this is kind of my thing that comes up with the boys later on down the road when a lot more gets out there. But I'll talk about that when we get there. Uh-huh. I just mm. like brief segue, but like I just don't understand false confessions. I know that a lot of it is people who want to gain notoriety or whatever. But for this specific murder that very stereotypically like gripped the nation's terror or whatever it's very interesting to me that that many people decided to confess that they were the ones who did the murders i I don't know what they would get out of that other than bringing back up this fear you know yeah and i and i would venture to say that most of the false confession confessions these 50 people that they say were people that were in in prison at the time Mm -hmm. and trying to get like you said credit in prison because it was an incredibly 
heinous crime. Yes, yes. Um, and it could also extend, uh, like if they're on um, death row, they could mm. possibly put it off by acting like they knew something about another case. Mm. Um, now, the, the other confessions that we're about to get into are very different. So we'll have to talk yes. about those in a different light. But let's go ahead and dive into the four boys that we mentioned before that were initially uh, questioned yes. and what happened with them. Lead detectives John Jones and Mike Huckabee were taken off the case. So the case goes dormant for eight years. Then Hector Polentro looks into the case again with fresh new eyes. That's when the police arrested all four boys again in 1999. It should be made clear that there were no new evidence brought forward at this time. After the boys were arrested, Pierce and Wilburn did not confess, but Scott and Springsteen did. With no actual evidence except their confessions, Pierce and Wilburn were let go, but Scott and Springsteen were detained and held. Their confessions are very controversial. Even though Scott voluntarily spoke and confessed to the cops and they were both charged, there's a lot of weird, hinky stuff that happened that led to those confessions. In fact, later, both Scott and Springsteen recanted, saying they were coerced into confessing on minimal evidence and very aggressive investigative tactics. For example, Scott underwent 18 hours of questioning. Springsteen had five. There is a clip, actually, that we're going to include, which is audio of Springsteen's interrogation. All right. We'll go ahead and do that one here. And I got Scott's also. We can play that one after. Okay, that was Robert Springsteen, and he was that was part of his interrogation there. He actually went on to give a confession on his own, saying that he killed and raped one of the girls, which also can't be true because there's no DNA, but, you know, that didn't match him. Well, that doesn't necessarily... Brad. I'm just saying. We're going to get into that later because I don't think that you're right about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll work on that. Uh, actually, this that that is where he should have stopped and said... I need my lawyer. That's what I'm just saying. Not 16 hours later or 18 hours later, whatever. Five five minutes in, you should have just shut up and went with that lawyer. Yeah. Um, Here is uh, some pieced together audio from um, Scott's confession. And this one's a little bit longer, and it just kind of shows you as it goes through the whole gambit of what he went through. You want the truth, and you know what the truth is. You're having trouble with the memory and the flashbacks. You know what happened. You're scared to tell us. I don't blame you. It's a horrible thing what you saw in there. Can I tell you what I keep seeing in my head? Tell us what you see in your head. I keep seeing these girls get shot. Right. Tell us what that looks like. Tell us what you see specifically. How they're getting shot and who's shooting them. Come on, Mike. We're doing good. Tell us. Let's do this today. Let's do it. Where he's handing his that revolver. What does he say to you? 
either shoot him or you're next. That's what because I didn't want to do it. Right. Either shoot him or you're next. What, what do you remember hearing then? I remember looking at this girl. I cry. I hear Robert saying, do it, do it. I hear the gun go off. I only pulled the trigger once. I turn around. Here's your stupid gun. What happened next, Mike? That brought back the memories, didn't it? I remember looking at the gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like a gun you've seen before? It looks like a gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. You did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've just opened some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. Okay. That just, you know, that's a lot of the piece together stuff. There's a couple things in there that you should kind of listen to, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. He at one point says, what I think I see in my head, I don't know if it's real or not. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of goes over the whole thing. Is that the gun that you that you use? Oh, well, I don't know. Most guns, you know, look alike. They all look like guns. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't all look alike, but you know what I mean. Yeah, relatively. Yeah. Um, a handgun's a handgun, a handgun. It's a handgun. Yeah. Let's <laughs> know exactly what a... Uh, how did Jasmine put it? The point point eight three zero. So once you know these things, like exactly, it's one of those you know things. But and also, this is you kind of heard a little bit about you know this gun you shot somebody in the head with. There's actually video of the like the cop pulling his gun out and sticking it up against his head at one point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, eighteen hours in questioning, and uh, you know how long did that go on? There's a lot of stuff that can go down under questioning. People can crack under questioning that don't even want to do anything, and that's how, mm-hmm. you know, well, that's how our justice system ends up with all these plea bargains. Anyhow, you know, mm-hmm. it, half the people in court don't even, you know, you can either take the plea bargain or we're going to try you, and you could be in 15 years in prison. You didn't mm-hmm. do anything, you know, you didn't do anything. But if you don't take the plea bargain, then you could totally be fucked and stuck in jail for 15 years. Mm-hmm. This is pressure. Is, you know, real stuff can make people say a lot of weird things. Yeah. yeah, but it can also make them tell the truth. Right. Saying. Yes, it can. But there's also a lot of times where it doesn't. I know. <laughs> yeah. Just like the relentless asking of Scott just over and over again. Like you see that in all the crime procedural TV shows and stuff, but hearing it and just hearing Scott's voice just gets, like get more and more defeated was really. Right. And th- there are a ton of cases out there that have been overturned that have had confessions saying what happened mm-hmm. because of DNA evidence. Yeah. And they're yeah. coerced confessions. And once that happens, you know, also why you don't take a lie detector test, but that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> refer to our previous episodes for uh, Brad's rants on lie detector <laughs> tests. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's very interesting because the, the detectives totally thought they were in the right in this that they thought if they pressed and pressed and pressed that would make Scott and Springsteen confess because the boys somehow had were able to give details that were supposedly only privy to the murderers but they the investigators definitely went extreme but you also to to get it out of them you also have to look at the fact that one cops do not have to tell you the truth when they're investigating no. you mm-hmm. they can tell you stuff to make you say other things right mm-hmm. you know like dude we know who we know everybody else said you did it why don't you just go ahead and say you did it yeah and, the cop literally said that in that transcript that you right yeah and there's yeah, but that's a tactic that they use oh yeah definitely it's a tactic they use and it's a tactic that gets people it's like if you just commit to say what you that you did it we'll go ahead and let you out of here it's no problem but I mean, it actually syncs up really well and we'll talk about it really soon but something that 
was a significant factor in the fact that the boys got a retrial was that their Sixth Amendment was violated. Right. They weren't able to, or they were not even given the choice to confront each other. And so it was a lot of the police pitting the two boys against each other, being like, right. this guy said that, this guy said that. Why is it not lining up? Oh, we're finding holes in your stories kind of thing. They well, totally took advantage of. One of the other things about it was the fact that this is a decade later, right? This is yes. 2001. They know things about the crime scene. People talk. Things got yes. out there. It wasn't exactly hidden about what went on. You know, you probably know enough about the OJ murders to know enough about what was the, the uh, how do you say it? In, uh, the um, possible OJ murder. But, you know, <laughs> but you know enough about that to uh-huh. be able to kind of confess to something of that nature or say, you know, oh, there was a glove that was left over and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, granted it's already went to court, but there's our stuff that has come out that people knew and people talked about and the bodies being stacked and everything else like that. And where they're at in the room, it wasn't exactly a secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So obviously there was a lot of backtracking on this case. A lot of it did have to do with the sheer lack of evidence. The contaminated crime scene, after all, yielded very little evidence. Which, to be fair, the firemen couldn't exactly not have, uh, you know, sprayed all the water everywhere because it was burning down. Anyway, so in 2006, DNA came and threw even more questionable light on the boys' convictions. Both Scott's and Springsteen's sentences actually were overturned. I don't know if we had mentioned before, but Scott was charged for life in prison without mm-hmm. parole, and then Springsteen was sentenced to death row. However, when DNA testing came out, apparently there was DNA found on Amy Ayers, who didn't match any of the four boys who had been previously pulled in for questioning. Interesting about this is that it was the DA, the DA mm-hmm. who was requesting the DNA testing. And so she thought for sure she was going to, because the whole thing with the, uh, the uh, sixth amendment, uh, mm-hmm. those rights being abused or um, whatever had already been going on. And so the DA is like, crap, I got to seal the deal here and make sure that I can reconvict them. So she mm-hmm. gets this DNA testing done. And while it does find male DNA, it does not match mm-hmm any of the four guys. But I will say that they say that that could be for a lot of reasons. I mean, it could have been contaminated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I don't know. And then there's the whole fifth person theory, which I'm sure you'll get into. Right. But, yeah. but there was no, there was no real evidence linking any of them to this no. murder. And that was the whole thing, which dealt with the uh, violation of their uh, Sixth Amendment rights, which is mm-hmm. if somebody accuses you, you can confront them in court. And they never got mm-hmm. a chance to do that. Um, Springsteen's attorney never got to talk to Scott who, when he went on a stand, basically. That's kind mm-hmm. of what happens. And, you know, and people said about when Scott went on the stand, it's like, oh, he's, you know, you can tell. And they also gauge people because they don't take the stand. You don't have to get mm-hmm. up there and on the stand and say anything. It's not for you to tell your innocence. It's for you know they're trying to prove your that you're guilty. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's a whole different thing. But because they weren't allowed to do that, that and like it's basically going to be going. Yeah, Lindy totally did it. She knew everything. <laughs> She's the one who told me to drive the car. I had nothing to do with it, but she had a gun pointed towards me, and you know that's how it happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And without being able to, you know, jump in that, that would that's the same theory, really. Yeah. And there's no transparency of like what the other person is saying mm-hmm. and accusing you of, which doesn't really let you build your defense very right. well either. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So very appropriately, Springsteen decided to sue the city of Austin for $700,000. After he was let go, because they were both let go at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all charges were dropped against them. And Mm -hmm. I think it was the same DA who had requested the DNA um, testing also put her foot down and said there would be no retrial unless new actual concrete evidence could be produced. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Because she wanted to be able to actually have the evidence towards them to try them. Because mm-hmm. if she took the case to court right now, 
with what they have, they wouldn't. They would totally lose. I mean, mm-hmm. well, the DA would lose, and this whole thing with them would be taken down. Which is why, like, Springsteen wants to go to court. He's like, "Can we just get this over with now, so I can get back on with my life?" Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And understandably, the family is upset about it because they have been told these are the ones who did it for you. These are mm-hmm. the ones who killed your daughters, and you see them let go. Yeah, and. They have, and it's understandable where they're at. I mean, they have somebody to blame. These are the people who did it, and they're walking around free. Mm-hmm. Everybody has told me this, and they got off for some little stupid amendment right, you know. Mm-hmm. And I can see where that issue is, but also you can see where if they didn't do anything, where Springsteen would want to get on with it, because that's always going to be on your head. You You can't really go out and get a job or anything and stuff like that. Have you been in prison? Yep. And, you know, these are questions that are on applications when you get there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. especially... Nobody wants a quadruple murderer working for them. No, especially the fact that you have it out on, um, in the public, then everybody knows it and word gets around. I mean, you move in down the house and I guarantee somebody's going to say something. Oh, mm-hmm. by the way, you know about the uh, killer who lives down the road from me? And your right. life is just, even if you, and this has happened to people who've been falsely accused of stuff before, even if you don't do anything, you are totally fucked for the rest of your life until something comes up saying, dude, you totally didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, because even the DA, so when she announced that they were dropping charges and releasing them, she she cried. There's video of it. Um, and I think that Dateline episode uh, I think it shows it. Mm-hmm. And she cried when she was announcing that because she does believe that actually all four of them were involved, especially Scott and Springsteen with their confessions. But she didn't really have any other choice because she had no evidence. She knew, you know, she couldn't move forward and win. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a rock and a hard place because of the way the justice system works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let us talk about alternate theories. Yes. Possibly done it. Well, um, let's just. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Yes. Public reminder ask for your lawyer. Don't say anything. (laughs) Just right off the bat. I tell people this all the time. I actually told one of my daughters that when she was here. I said, if you ever get arrested for anything, just ask for a lawyer. Don't, (laughs) for one, don't get arrested for anything. But, you know. And here's how you get out of zip ties. Okay. That was a whole nother thing. So, <laughs> Refer to last episode on that as well. <laughs> yes. So uh, I want to start off with one thing here. We're just going to throw this out because we talked about uh, Kenneth Allen McDuff a little bit. We touched on him. Mm-hmm. He was one of the individuals that they looked at that when this crime happened. And he was a serial killer that was released in 1989 and just happened to be in the area. He was uh, questioned due to his histories of murders involving teenagers, but the police ruled him out. Okay, short story. He received three death sentences, which then got commuted to life sentences. Then he hired a lawyer after his accomplice, Royal Dale Green, died, and they managed to show evidence that Green was the killer, thus letting uh, McDuff go. Always blame it on the dead guy. And it works, apparently. So when he was questioned about the yogurt shop murders, he told police, uh, and this, you know, one of these quotes here that was really weird. Basically, he told the police, if he would have done it, he would have been proud of it and let him know. Oh, and they're like, oh, dude, you're you're good, man. Just, just take off and go. You're fine. <laughs> so later on, uh, not so nice story, McDuff goes on to kill more people and eventually does get executed. Right before his execution, he did try to take responsibility for the murder. But I think that was just one of those, yeah, I did it, whatever. So the thing to note about this and the tie-in here is that McDuff, along with an accomplice named Alva Worley, on December 29th, 1991, they went to an Austin car wash and they kidnapped a Colleen Reed from there in plain sight with people watching, drove away with her, and um, they raped and tortured her. But then he said he did not participate in her murder. I'm guessing saying that it was just um, Worley said that they did. She didn't participate in the murder, but that McDuff did. So this kind of puts him in Austin at the time of the yogurt shop murders as well. So there is a tie in there. So mm-hmm. that's why people really think that it could be possible that it was him. 
Well, yeah, Whether that's true or not. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's there, but I also go with the whole fact of him going right at the beginning. I would have said something. He would, I would have been proud of doing that one. You know, he, the guy was kind of weird like that. Mm-hmm. We could go on a whole thing about him just by himself if we ever wanted to take that on in the future. Cause yeah, he, he's he had, psycho. Yeah, the broomstick <laughs> killer or something like that. Uh, uh, another interesting little tidbit here is the 1993 Below grocery store murders. In North Carolina. What? This case had the victims' bodies were stacked on top of each other and shot. Oh. Just like what happened in the yogurt shop thing two years earlier. They could possibly mm-hmm. be related. I don't know. It's an unresolved mystery in North Carolina. No one knows. It's a triple murder that happened there. Hmm. So it's just another coincidence. It fits in with kind of how things worked here a little tiny bit. Yeah. Um. Then we also have the fact that the detective uh, Hector there was fired for coercing confessions from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had he made a habit of that. Yeah, so. yeah, we can see why. You know, you pull a gun out and stick it on someone's head. That's kind of coercing a little bit. Right, right. What? Why? I think it's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. I, if I was a cop, I would do it. I would threaten everybody and I would punch people and. Um, <laughs> I'd be a horrible cop, but I'd get confessions all right. Nah, you'd be talking to my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> not from Brad. Not a confession yeah. from Brad. Nope, not at all. I get pulled over. I'd be like, I need my lawyer. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> They're like, uh, yeah. So are there any more alternate theories kind of swirling around that are popular? I mean, other than the fact of the two guys that were in the yogurt shop at the end of it that we don't know who they are that were never identified. I always find that kind of weird. They talked like everybody that was in the shop except for those two people. Right. And, and why wouldn't you, obviously if you were the last people to see them alive, this case was highly publicized. It was everywhere. Um, You would think that they would see that on the news and be aware of that and would willingly come forward because I think everybody else that was in the shop that day did. Um, And I don't know if I said this earlier, but I had mentioned that that married couple came in Mm -hmm. towards the end of the night and had seen those two men sitting there. And the wife said that she thought that they were creepy and that um, she was suspicious of them, Mm. that they were acting sketchy, whatever that might mean. I don't think she went into details. She just got a bad feeling about them. Right. And there is... Uh, somewhere out there, there are descriptions of what they look like. I mean, because a lot of people saw them. So they, like, one was five foot seven, had like um, blonde hair, the other one had dark hair, and they both had on mm-hmm. big jackets. One was like a green jacket, and I think the other one's a black one. I mean, mm-hmm. but a lot of people saw them and they could identify who they were. Yeah. Except that's one of the things. It's like, how do you go from, okay, you have two really good suspects right there to, we're going to go after these four boys. Uh huh. Right. And I I think especially what happens on this case, and I'm not saying that they didn't do it or not. I don't really know. I don't think so-ish. It's kind of, sort of. But you have an empty case for a long time. And it's open, and the detectives on it haven't made any progress. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to get rid of those, put somebody else on it. These guys right here, they're our best bet. Let's go ahead and go after them. And mm-hmm. that's just it's like the beeline on things. This is the tunnel vision of who did it, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's what goes with the DA also. The, we're going to go, we know these boys did it. We can just push on them long enough and everything else. And there are like comments out there from some articles I've read of people who went to school with these boys and said, these are like a bunch of D&D geek boys. They weren't, <laughs> they weren't like savage killers. They were just geek loser kids and that was you know what they're saying they did and how this massive horrific crime was really not in how they were but you Mm -hmm. start painting people that way and everybody believes you know how everything is well nobody thought Ted Bundy was a uh, murderer either but you know right but even books can be deceiving (laughs) actually let me play this uh, before I forget about it I got that uh, interview part there from Detective Jones from the uh, 48 hour episode. Let me play that before I forget. Okay. 
It's a nice confession, but it's still got to match up to the facts. For instance, Jones says the killers did not go into the yogurt shop office as Michael Scott claimed they did. And how do you know that that part of the confession just didn't happen? Well, the door was locked when we got there. We had to use a key on it to open. Jones also wonders about Scott's language in his written confession. I had a Zippo lighter with me and lit the fire. I heard a whoosh sound of the accelerant when it caught fire. Accelerant was a multi-syllable word, and I think that was his first multi-syllable word. You think that was spelled by one of the investigators? I think you heard it earlier, yeah. Because who refers to lighter fluid as an accelerant? I mean, that's cop talk. Okay, granted that wasn't a part of our theory, but that was back, you know, in our confessions and stuff like that. And I meant to play that part, but I forgot. But I wanted to make sure we got it out there. That's fine. And I mean, I, I understand that that word might not have been in his vocabulary normally, but that doesn't mean that he didn't, that he wasn't sincere in that. It's just that he had right. heard the word. But there's also, if you go, go look up the 48 hours um, video on that one for Yoga Shop Murders, you can find it on YouTube. And in it, like Scott's, um, I know Springsteen's attorney's talking, and he mentions how the original report from the uh, the fire chief and all this, the, the fire report, was changed to match the confession that was given. Yeah. And I don't know to what extent, though, because we don't have those details. Right. So. I, I'm sure we could find it if we looked hard enough and stuff like that and did a, you know, uh, a release for it and stuff. But those are things that always get me. Is like, why would something be changed after the fact just to match what a confession says? It just kind of says we need yeah. everything to match up with this. Sure. Uh, and I do think it's easy, interesting. Detective um, John Jones also says he thinks it's odd. He's, you know, I think he was a little put off that he wasn't brought back on or that nobody ever talked to him when he originally uh, interrogated these four right mm -hmm. after the murders. Mm -hmm. He also says in that 48 hours interview with him, something about, if I couldn't get a confession out of them or any information out of them when they were just 15, 16 year old boys, it's not that likely that you'd get it out of them 10 years later. He's like, I don't think that a 15 year old, 16 year old is going to be able to hold details of a murder that close to their chest. Um, I mean, whether that's true or not, I don't know. That's his opinion, which I, which I understand. I think you get scared the crap out of a teenager a lot easier than you can scare the crap out of like a 30 year old man. You know, you could put a teenager in there, but there's also those laws that, you know, they have to have people there, but I you guess, could still again, do you it. scared him enough to create possibly a false confession if it wasn't real. So true. So he wasn't into the false confession. So maybe that was, <laughs> it's just one, I don't know. It's, Oh, we should also note that Maurice Pierce, uh, I forgot about this. He yeah. actually died yes. sometime later. Does anybody know the year he died? He had a, an unrelated confrontation with the police and was shot and killed. Oh, wait, uh, hold so on, he I was pretty know. much a piece of shit all his life from what I can gather. Yeah, he uh, was, it was yeah, he's dead. December 23rd, 2010. Uh, apparently yes. it was a routine stop by the police officer and uh, Pierce was stabbed the, uh, the cop in the neck, but the officer survived and took out oh. Pierce. So yeah, he didn't go up any better in life. No, he no. didn't. And, and I think it's interesting that a lot of people believe that he was the ringleader because he had that type of personality and he had that kind of place amongst the four boys. But he never confessed and they couldn't hold him to anything. So and nothing ever happened to him. But even in the confessions, they kind of made it sound like Pierce was the guy who was telling them what to do. Right. Yeah, so even did, like they could do the whole McDuff thing and go, yeah, he did everything. He did it all. We we just we were there by gunpoint, you know. Right. They're not going to do that, but I'm just saying it's a possibility, but. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I want Jasmine, do you have an alternate theory? Uh, not so much an alternate theory, but it's just Oh, did we talk about the fifth man theory? Cuz that's right. bullshit. Yeah, I only brought it up for a second, but let's talk about the fifth man theory as it comes into yeah. play with that DNA that was found, because that yeah. is a, a theory that people tried to put out there. I mean, all I, because it made my eyes roll so much, I like stopped researching it. <laughs> but <laughs> essentially, the fifth man theory is that, remember when we had discussed that there was DNA found on Amy 
Ayer's body that didn't belong to any of the other four boys who were brought in for questioning. Mm-hmm. So they were saying that this is another person who was involved, whether he was with the original group or whatever, but he was the one who committed all these murders and then th- apparently disappeared into the middle of the night. It's it's such bullshit. It's a way to find an answer to that mysterious DNA, but it doesn't hold up. It could potentially be those two creepy guys that were there when they were right. locking up, or it could be the guy who weirdly just got a soda. It's just a lot of maybes. It doesn't solve anything. And just yeah. throwing that out there as a theory honestly doesn't it doesn't do anything yeah. except make it sound a little bit more legitimate. Yeah. I don't know. And what? I think that the fifth man theory was really just to so that they didn't have to say, okay, these four boys weren't involved. It was a way for them mm-hmm. to say, oh, the four boys were involved. There, It's just that there was a fifth person. Right. Um, because they didn't want to count out the other four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, who knows? But I, I would say also that that's probably bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole this whole thing is like bullshit. And like, sure, maybe the four boys, especially Scott and... Um, Springsteen. Springsteen. Um, maybe they were somehow involved, but it just how everything was handled, the integration that went, the just very aggressive ways that the investigators went behind it because they were so motivated to solve this cold case was unfortunate and over the top. So I don't really feel anything towards them, except maybe I feel sorry for them. But I don't know. Yeah. So there's a couple things that I, so for one, a lot of people said that it was a robbery gone wrong, which I don't know if I agree with. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you guys think. I think it had to be premeditated, at least on some level. I mean, how much lighter fluid would it take to send that place up in flames? I feel like right. they would have had to plan it at some point. Like the no sales rang up right at 1103. Uh-huh. So it was right after they closed and those doors were locked. Um, so somebody knew and just the starting of the fire and the way that the murders were executed. I don't think it's something that was just done in the moment. I mean, mm-hmm. do you guys a- agree with that or no? I do. I, mean, I, I agree you with do? you. I don't think it was just done in the moment. I think it was something that was planned out. And my whole thing where I, where I lie at on this whole entire thing is the two people that were never identified. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, if you're there from 9.30 to 11 o'clock, you got plenty of time to figure everything out. And mm-hmm. it's it's been out there for a while, man. And it's like, dude, this is a good reason why not to come forward. Either one, you did it, or two, you've done other stuff, and that's why you're not coming forward. I think that's where, I'm sure that's where the investigation was focused on, but they couldn't find anything. And once that lead went dead, it's where, you know, years later, I think that's where it went the other way. But mm-hmm. just the whole thing of the other two people there, it screwed it, you know, the fifth man thing. Well, it's not a fifth man. There's other two two guys there. And plus we heard the other sketchy guy was there also. I don't really think <laughs> the boys really had that much to do with anything. I just think they kind of got thrown into the mix and that's it. In the public's eyes, they're guilty. But, you know, until those other two people are brought forward, that is reasonable doubt enough for me to say not guilty. I can't, you know, if I'm on a jury, I couldn't convict anybody because there's evidence that's left out. Mm-hmm. That's where I, mm. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> so I, I, I'm really on the fence, but I really lean towards that. Those boys did do it. I know the two people that were there at the end of the night that never came forward are suspicious. And I, I guess that, yes, there's a, good chance that it could have been them but the details that were given in those confessions even though some of them seemed uh led or forced mm-hmm. i mean springsteen accurately gave the location of amy's body i don't it wasn't released at the time that she was found where exactly she was found but he had known yeah, and he and also her said that as well but that was out her, there the people position of her body people did mm-hmm. know that information because it was out on the streets because other people reported that they knew that you mean other people that they had questioned uh yeah it's gen- in general other people in austin had mentioned that they had known that information i, I ran across a couple wow. things online that said that 
Okay, fine. Well, he also knew that she had been. So we had, if you remember, she, Amy was shot twice, two different guns. One was the 22. Um, and Springsteen during his interrogation freely said he was not led on this one, that she was also shot with the 380, which was the second gun. And that was not made public. Mm-hmm. Unless you have some other information. I don't know. I, that one was not made public. No, but not I at the moment. I don't have anything on that. Yeah, that's right. You don't. But I think <laughs> that they backtrack so quickly because they're dumb. And then they got lawyers and the lawyers were like, what is wrong with you? They literally have no evidence on you. We need to turn this thing around. I don't know. If you listen to more of Scott's confession, he says things like specific things. Like I heard someone get slapped. He says he gives details about specific things that he remembers being said it's just these details about like feelings and mm-hmm. sounds and these that just don't sound made up. But we're it sounds also like not it's coming from a place of memory. But we're also not getting the full confession. You're not hearing the full interrogation. You're hearing the bits of the interrogation that they want you to hear. Well, I'm just saying that's how it is. That's that's those yeah. are the things that are released. The information that can prove guilt is what is released. The information that cannot prove guilt is something that you're not hearing. And that's the mm-hmm. whole I, 18 hours of it. We had three minutes of audio. Mm-hmm. It, you yeah, know, that's true. It's, it's a whole lot of stuff. So yeah. it, that's all. That's all I mean with that part. I'm not, you know, yeah. you can go with it. They're still guilty and everything else, but I'm just saying you have 18, 18 hours of audio. And the only part that we're using is a, 30-second sound bite of going, yes, I did it. I shot them in the head. Did you shoot them in the head, yeah. in the back of the head? Yes, I shot them in the back of the head. It's, it's yeah, that's all. Yeah, yeah. And, and I see that. I see that, too. I'm so on the fence about it because of those two men that never came forward at the end of the mm-hmm. night. Um, I just don't know. I, I do think that it had to be at least two people. Oh, sure. I agree. I agree. At least uh, two people. To control the situation, especially since they were found in two separate parts, uh-huh. I, I I think that the people that did it made them think that it was just a robbery, and that's why they didn't scream, and that's why they kept them calm, because they made it seem like they probably weren't going to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just so messed up, and it's it's just sad, because there's no answers for families. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and that's the sad part about it. There, there is no answer, and that's just what makes it rough. And this case, I was re- really having issues with this case every time that I looked at it because I have three daughters, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's uh-huh. one of those. Uh, what would I do? And that's I, yeah, I don't know. I would want to blame somebody. And there's like an interview out there with one of the girl's brother and who said he just mm-hmm. you know wanted to pretty much kill him at all. And I'm that's pretty much where I would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm not lying I would pretty much go crazy a little bit yeah I would too I would too especially when this case has been drug on for so long and it had so many ups and downs of it went cold and then people are convicted and then there's a sixth amendment uh, you know stuff it's just it's it's unfortunate but I, I don't know I really wish that they could identify those two men that were there. Um, I wish that they could find the DNA, figure out what the DNA is all about that was found on Amy. Um, I just don't understand why they didn't have surveillance cameras in there. Because it's 1991. 1991. (laughs) They ain't had nothing like that. Can you imagine? And And I saw something in an interview. One of the detectives, I can't remember who it was, was like, you know, obviously if this case was investigated today, it would be very different. And this was a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and it's true. It, it's just, it was, it was just different back then. And unfortunately, as Jasmine mentioned, the crime scene was pretty much ruined mm-hmm. when the fire was put out. And then the firemen had no idea there were bodies in there. So they went walking through everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the answers may never be found, but there's people still uh, send in tips all the time for this case. Yes. Yep. And, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And also, I mean, while we're talking about false confessions and everything else, do yourself a favor one day and go check out the innocenceproject.org and see some of the cases there on things that have been overturned because of 
you know, confessions and DNA and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, it's a lot of it's exonerated by DNA, but there are things that were people have had to, who confessed to stuff because they were kind of coerced confessions. And they have a whole bunch of stuff on the Innocent Project. Go check it out. Yeah. And if you've seen season two of uh, Making a Murderer, which I'm not saying is all fact, I mean, it's a show for Netflix. <laughs> yeah. But they really get into the whole false confessions and the psychology behind that. It's, it's kind of interesting. So if you've seen that, that gives you kind of a look into to that as well. The Brendan Dassey's lawyers do a lot with, with that research. If you have any information on this case, police encourage you to call 512-472-TIPS tips. Or if you want to suggest another case, criminal, or mystery for the show, you can comment in SoundCloud or on Pure Fandom. You can also chat with us on Twitter, Jasmine at Blueberry Jelly, Lindy at Lindy R. Smith, and Brad at Brad ZB. And you can find Pure Fandom on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Until next time, for Jasmine and Brad, I am Lindy Smith, and you have been listening to Pure Murders and Mysteries. That's it for this episode. Head on over to purefandom.com for more awesome content.